Our final speaker for this morning is Dr. Francis Larson, who um, is currently at Durham University, but has previously written about the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, um, and today is going to be talking about the Welcome Collection. So, Francis, I'll hand over to you. Hi, thanks. It's really good to be here. Um, my talk's going to be slightly different because it's going to be a bit more biographical. I'm just going to look at one collection um, in particular, um, the Welcome Collection. And uh, this, this collection was really very, very large, very big, so big that you would uh, wonder how it could get lost. Not really an easy collection to, to overlook. Um, and I want to just start straight in by giving you um, some idea of the scale of um, Welcome's project. Um, so when he died, he died in 1936. I'm going to tell you a bit more about him in a minute. Um, there were estimates um, of how, as to how large his collection was. Um, and they ran to 12,000 cases and hundreds, probably thousands, of freestanding items. And, and based on the kind of look of um, the numbers of, of how many cases there were, um, there, there were an estimated one million items, which is really mind-blowing when you think that big collections are in the hundreds and extremely large collections are in the thousands or tens of thousands. Um, after he died, um, a lot of stuff was just rotting away, and um, it was measured by the ton, uh, stuff that had to be thrown away. Uh, three and a half tons of swords, two and a half tons of other armor and um, weaponry, five tons of paper and photographs, three tons of metal that he'd bought for um, big excavation, archaeological excavation projects he was planning had to be scrapped. Um, wood, he was, um, he collected um, all sorts of um, wooden objects and wood also he was intending to make the cases for his museum that he was planning um, that had just rotten away um, although some of it was salvaged for some of his research laboratories that he'd also established um, and frequent uh, well I'll just go on to say that it took most of the 20th century it took about 50 years um, to sort through his collection and gradually um, um, get rid of stuff that was n deemed not useful to people and uh, to give things away, to sell things at auction. Um, and often tons of stuff, tens of thousands of objects were, were given to other museums um, and other institutions or sold. Um, and more than 100 museums and libraries now have um, objects from Wellcome's collection. So that's just some idea of the, the scale of what we're looking at. Um, but it, it is, in many ways, a lost, a lost museum nonetheless. Um, a little bit about Welcome. Um, born in 1853 in Wisconsin, uh, became a, a pharmaceutical salesman, and in his mid-20s, moved to London to set up in business, pharmaceuticals business, with um, a, an American friend of his, um, Silas Burroughs. Uh, they founded Burroughs Welcome & Co., um, enormously successful international pharmaceuticals company. Um, um, and 
At his death, um, probably what he's best known for today is, of course, the Wellcome Trust. These are the headquarters on Euston Road, um, one of the, the biggest private um, scientific uh, research funding bodies in the world and certainly in the UK. Um, I think it funds about 11% of all scientific research in the UK or something, so, um, hundreds of millions of pounds a year. Um, so Wellcome had, was a hugely successful businessman, um, but his lifelong passion was his collection. Um, and this is just a, some kind of uh, impression of the kinds of things he collected. Um, he collected his whole life. He claimed that he'd picked up his first um, flint tool when he was four years old, and that had sparked his interest in the history of of human um, culture and and particularly the history of human health, um, and um, although his kind of um, initial public interest was the history of human health, what really makes him stand out and certainly made him stand out at the time was the breadth of his vision. Um, um, he was interested in health and well-being. Um, across all time periods and all ages um, and all parts of the world. And what he did really was to combine the history of medicine, which was itself a, a new, a, a kind of quite new um, academic discipline, with anthropology um, and try and bring these two together and really see human health as a kind of lens for viewing human ingenuity and cultural um, technological innovation and design innovation across different um, uh, cultural groups in different parts of the world, um, which is really a, a groundbreaking approach. A lot of people write welcome off because he was mad, a bit mad. Um, but, but, you know, he did, there was, there was um, a, a quite exciting um, attitude there to human, the human past. Um, and, of course, th this made his vision much broader and much more interdisciplinary than a lot of other people who, private collectors who were collecting um, in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, so he collected thousands and thousands of objects. He had this really interesting kind of idea about how to look at the past. And yet, for much of the 20th century, his collection has really been very little known, hardly known at all. Um, only a fraction of it has ever really been put on display, and, and that's still true today. Certainly only a fraction of it was put on display during his lifetime. He did open a museum, um, the Wellcome Historical Medical Museum, which opened in 1913 um, and was open for uh, 19 years. Um, and it was very well received um, Although not many people visited it, he was very um, he limited uh, who could who could visit. You had to have a letter from your doctor, and most of the people who visited were um, the kind of academic and medical elite. Um, but it was very well received in the press and um, amongst the people who did who did see it and know about it. Um, but only a tiny fraction of what Wellcome had, and he was constantly buying more all the time, um, um, was ever on display. Um, so you have this collection growing and growing while only a tiny little um, part of it is actually um, um, 
has actually been interpreted and put together and opened up to s some um, part of the, of the public. Um, and Wellcome himself didn't um, see this museum as a, as a finished product in any, by any stretch of the imagination. He saw it as a temporary project. He was always planning a much bigger museum, a much grander museum. Um, he talked about wanting to create the biggest um, muse private museum in the country. Um, and he really began to think of his museum as a museum of mankind much more broadly um, rather than um, a specific medical, historical medical collection. Um, but um, when he died in his 80s, um, this, this new museum was still very much incomplete. Um, and so it, really when he died, the kind of momentum was lost. There were these huge warehouses full of objects and there was nothing for it but to, um, for his trustees to start um, rationalizing what he'd done and start um, shedding some of the material that they deemed to be superfluous. Um, and from, really from the year after he died, things started to be sold at auction, um, given away, thrown away, um, and... Um, the collection starts to kind of lose its cohesion, cohesion and, and um, move off into um, other contexts. Um, and this continues over the decades until the 1980s when the, the little core, well, little, I say, I think it was about 160,000 objects, um, the core of Wellcome's historical medical collection um, was given to the Science Museum, and they have um, welcome galleries at the Science Museum where you can see um, some of Wellcome's historical medical material today. So, um, so we have this situation where kind of Wellcome's vision has has had to um, come to an end, and um, it's recreated in these different museums and galleries um, around the country. But the reality is that a lot of the collection, actually, um, most of the collection is still in storage in those museums um, and libraries. Um, and this is some of the storage at the Science Museum. Um, so you have these thousands of things like, here you can see... Um, uh, surgical instruments, um, glasses, spectacles, pictures, um, prosthetic limbs, um, kind of unknown and hidden away. Um, and in that sense, it is a lost museum. It's a really a, a phantom museum, always more of a fantasy than a reality, um, something that kind of has never... Um, come into its own in the way that Wellcome certainly thought it would and hoped that it would. Um, and the idea um, that I wanted to explore a bit today is that, um, that Wellcome himself was really lost, that he was lost within his collection and that he never really managed to kind of assert himself over the objects he acquired. Um, he was, and there are a number of reasons for this, and I think the, the main one really is that um, it became really a way of life for Welcome. He just loved the process of, of buying things. Um, 
and and the kind of um, the typical collector's problem that there's always there's always more. It's always it's the thrill of the chase um, that's that's so exciting about this kind of life lifestyle when you devote yourself to collecting in this way. And welcome really established his collection as a, a way of life in that he employed people, lots of people, to buy things for him. Um, here are some of his uh, members of staff um, who acquired things for him. He had collecting agents all over the world, um, and they wrote these incredibly detailed reports. So he was getting this constant kind of narrative of, of his own collection being sent back to him by his agents and telling him all the um, detailed stories of what objects they were after and the fun characters they'd met along the way who they were negotiating with and the, the thrill of whether you could get a bargain and how much something would be. And, um, and so he was really kind of bound up in this, uh, the, uh, his own story, his own um, um, journey um, as a collector. Um, and he was very meticulous about annotating all these reports and every single object he would mark and put a tick or say, this is great, you know, go back and try again or you need to spend more or less or, um, and send them back to his agent. So you have this wonderful documentation of the collection growing from all these places around the world as people are buying things and, and sending them off to welcome and he's responding back again. Um, and so you have that kind of lived experience of what collecting is about and why people do it. Um, but also the, the Welcome's own parameters were very inclusive. Um, he was a very democratic collector in a lot of ways in that every little thing mattered to him. He was not... He was, Interest, as interested in things that seemed insignificant and small um, as, and, as the kind of rare, unusual things, if not more so. He was actually more interested in everyday objects, common objects, because he was wanting to create a research collection. He wanted to create an accurate picture of health practices, of human cultural ingenuity and technological change. Um, so he wasn't interested in rare, expensive things. He was interested in um, everyday things and lots of them to create this kind of complete research picture. Um, and the other thing about Welcome was that he didn't really know where he was going. He, didn't, he wasn't one of these collectors who had a theory and was using their collection to illustrate it. Um, he was wanting to um, get everything he could so that one day he would work out how it all fitted together. And he wasn't very confident theoretically or he, he didn't kind of know where he was going. So that, of course, meant that every little thing might be important. Um, so really, he was the kind of collector who didn't mind getting a bit lost um, he, he was quite open-minded, he was quite excited by everything and anything that came his way, and he was also very competitive as a, in the collecting market, and he was, of course, hugely wealthy. Um, he, so there weren't, weren't the normal limits that a collector might have um, to their kind of interest in terms of, of finance. So you have this situation where... Collecting becomes a, a way of life. Um, 
and, and a form of employment, really, for other people. Other people's livelihoods depended on welcome because he was paying them to, to buy him stuff. And that's a situation that is quite difficult to, um, to, to bring in under control once it's got to a certain um, level. Um, his interest in everyday things, in mundane things, as well as unusual things um, and rare things, and wanting to have a lot for this research and accurate picture of the past. Um, and being quite open-minded, not really knowing where he was going with things and wanting to learn from, really genuinely wanting to learn from everything he acquired, um, rather than imposing himself on, on his objects. And his enormous financial resources... And the result of all this was um, chaos. Um, really um, extraordinarily overwhelming collection. Um, and there are extraordinary stories um, about the situation in the 1920s and 30s when Welcome was in his 60s, 70s, 80s, and just buying, buying, buying. And there was no um, real idea of what he already had. I mean, literally... Um, he bought these vast warehouses. This is one, his main warehouse in the late 1920s, and you can see um, a huge um, floor space around these different courtyards, and all these rooms were packed to the ceiling. There are stories of spears being laid across the roof rafters because there was just no space anymore, and tiny little channels through the packing cases that were just lining the walls and coming out into the, all the space and um, poor group of people who had to work here um, it was just near a fish factory and it was not a very nice place to work and um, trying to start cataloguing this stuff, a lot of which they didn't know what it was, it had come from auction it wasn't very well documented um, and Meanwhile, van loads of things just arriving every day. Everything from kind of prams um, to carriages, um, f you know, just a whole range, straw dollies, um, you know, um, surgical instruments, all kinds of things just showing up um, the whole time. And when people tried to kind of rein him in and just suggest that maybe we might have that already his attitude was oh well it's too take too long to find out if we have it just just buy it again um and uh and also stories of people spending days trying to get to something they did know was somewhere and having to it just literally took them days to physically move other things to get to what they were trying to find and along the way, coming across um, boxes that from auction houses that had never been opened for 20 years. You know, in the late 1920s, they were finding boxes labelled 1904 um, that had just never been opened. So, um, so in a so I suppose what I'm try have been thinking about with this theme today is that. Um, it's not so much that a very big thing is easy to lose, but that it's very easy to get lost in. And it was really overwhelming. Big things are hard to see clearly. You kind of can't position yourself within them um, or, um, or get any perspective on them. Um, and so it was, it's ironic, really, that it's because it was so big that it was hard to 
to see, hard to keep under control um, or, or contain or assert yourself over. Um, so on one level, the story of this extraordinary historical, medical, anthropological collection is a story of, of failure. Um, Welcome failed to open his grand museum of mankind. He failed to catalogue what he had, to really have any idea of what he had, to organise it in any way, never mind to present it to a wider audience. Um, and he really failed to understand his collection um, or, or formulate any theories about it or put it into use um, he didn't publish anything. Um, he didn't really allow anyone else to because he was always waiting for the big final moment when it would be finished and open and have the grand ceremony. So it was never really opened up to research. He was very secretive about it. Um, and ultimately he was lost in, in the centre of this, this huge enterprise that was always growing and never being um, rationalized or interpreted. And I think at the same time, and this is something Sam talked about, the, the world was moving on. Um, you know, by the 1920s and 30s, the kind of cutting edge scientific research um, was moving away from museums and into either laboratories or into the field. Um, as Sam said, the kind of unit of analysis shrunk down um, to the microscopic level um, rather than um, whole collections of objects. And, um, and also you have this huge specialisation um, of academic disciplines. Um, so disciplines kind of move out of these, this kind of general grand vision of the human past um, and the what we now think of as an interdisciplinary approach, um, kind of um, was left behind as people began to focus more and more on their own specialisation and try and um, um, hone down their interests rather than these rather arrogant, as we would now think, and linked to empire as well, this kind of idea that you could present the whole of the human past um, and that was your prerogative. And that, of course, became with the fall of empire and the world, the 20th century um, progressing, that became um, really um, irrelevant and rather embarrassing. And um, so really kind of Welcome's moment passed him by. Um, he kind of got a bit left behind, really. Um, but so on the one hand, there's, there's this kind of missed opportunity, this sense of loss and failure that this would, what would have been an amazing, an extraordinary institution, um, ne never, um, never happened. Um, but on the other hand, maybe we could all do with being a little bit lost. And maybe it's not such a bad thing to, to be a bit lost in, in collections. Um, in a way, that's a collection's great strength, is that you can get lost, that it does lead you in new directions that you hadn't foreseen, it, and um, takes you on surprising twists and turns. And really, I think 
it's the areas of loss, as it were, or the, the gaps in museums, the, the storage places, the places that are forgotten and haven't been looked at for a long time, the objects that maybe don't have a lot of documentation, um, that are slightly mysterious, that we don't know much about. You know, maybe those are the most exciting parts of, of a museum. Um, and because a collection is never really just about presenting a vision that you've already um, put together, and it's not about kind of just illustrating something you know. Um, it's about leading you um, on a, a different journey, um, an invitation, as it were, to kind of discover different things and things that you hadn't foreseen um, and to surprise you. Um, I think maybe some collectors, there's a continuum, and some collectors know more what their, um, their specific aims and ideas are and possibly are more in, in, interested in illustrating an idea they already have, whereas other collectors are just kind of going along the thrill of the chase and aren't really sure what, what's going to be around the corner. And there's always a balance between those two um, elements um, within any collection, um, and possibly welcome just uh, didn't didn't get the balance quite right. Um, but there is a flip side to to the failure, um, which is that the welcome collection ha can and has been um, has been reincarnated, um, and in a way, because welcome wasn't prescriptive, because he didn't say. It didn't have the chance or ran out of time and never said, this is the way it's going to be and here's my museum, finished, complete, you must keep it the way it is now um, forevermore. Um, and also because he wasn't a very discerning collector um, or as discerning as other collectors and he was very kind of um, inclusive and democratic and just w was interested in anything and everything. Um, didn't kind of restrict his own interests to a particular discipline or, or genre. What that means is that the collection as it survives today, it may not be what Welcome had intended, but there's huge potential there. There's huge um, potential for it to be reinterpreted, to be brought to life in different ways. Um, there's a kind of freedom um, from the fact that Welcome didn't actually manage to do what he'd hoped to do. Um, there's these little, the, this kind of room in the collection for later generations to use the material, to research the material, um, and to get lost in the material um, in their own way. And um, just um, the most obvious example of this is the Welcome Collection itself, Welcome Collection on Euston Road, which opened in 2006, I think, um, and the Medicine Man Gallery there um, is, use, is, um, uses objects from Welcome's collection. It is a gallery about Welcome's own collection, um, but it's a completely different um, idea of what his collection can tell us and how it can inspire us. Um, from one that Welcome would recognise himself. Um, so we're not, we don't have to kind of um, be tied to what Welcome himself um, 
his own ideas. We can use his life's work in our own new ways, um, different themes. This gallery has themes like the end of life, fertility, um, the beginning of life, um, and also quite aesthetic um, displays, um, rather than the very kind of research-focused, scientific, um, educational display that Welcome himself um, intended. So I think, in a way, it, it's kept the collection modern for it to have, have failed, in a way. Um, and, and I think um, it's also... I think it's modern because we live in a, an age now that's very much about um, the information age, the Internet, people making their own connections, going on their own journeys, that it's more about kind of giving people the resources to find their own way through um, a collection or a museum and trying to kind of rebalance that um, education on the one hand um, and inspiration on the other. Um, whereas Welcome kind of felt that he knew what he, want, he, he wanted to present his collection. Um, this is my vision. This is the final product. Here it is for everyone else to enjoy. Now we're much more interested in giving people the resources to be able to um, learn, f learn for themselves and find out more where, when and where they want to and make their own connections. Um, so I think really now we're actually a bit happier being a bit lost. And in that sense, I think Welcome's collection, um, in all its new um, contexts, in all its new galleries and um, um, museums ar around the world um, is uh, giving us the resources to, to get a little bit lost like he was, but in a good way. <laughs> Thanks. Alan. So I've asked all three speakers to come back up. Um, do you want to take a chair So uh, now's your chance to uh, raise any points that uh, come out of today's talk. And I can see a hand going straight up in the middle there. I'm so sorry. Can we do the recording today? So we really need you to use the microphone. Oh, sure. Do you want to vote just in the centre here? Um, hello. This is uh, for Dr. Alberti. Um, what's happened to all the specimens that have quietly disappeared since the 90, since the Human Tissue Act? Um, well, um, we didn't dispose of anything here that I um, know of, but the pathology collections that have disappeared, um, it, I've done so very quietly. Um, those that we know about were um, incinerated. I did simply destroy the Human Tissue Act and the um, in other museum areas, the guidance about human remains that um, DCMS published at the same time, there were some, uh, the combination of these, there were some collections who had small groups of, of human remains, couldn't afford the license fee, and uh, have tra transferred them to other museums. Um, there was a pathology museums group actually based here. My um, colleague Martin Cook and colleagues in the audience are, are familiar with this, who made it their aim to seek to, in the 90s, to seek to rescue, they did a bit of kind of rescue museology to um, absorb those collections that they could. 
and many still survive in in, in hospitals and um, because they're not as always as not all as well used as we'd like them to be. Um, but the ones that disappeared, so um, Edinburgh Pathology in 2004, I think, were either transferred or um, uh, quietly, respectfully disposed of. And d- does this include the historical sort of 200-year-old year specimens as well? Just well, the human tissue art stipulates um, the, it as a century cutoff, so it, it only covers those remains from the last century, but often, um, especially with anatomical and pathological collections that have been in teaching is one doesn't know how old they are yes. necessarily or even certainly not to specific enough you can sort of tell a little bit so a lot of the older specimens went with but um, maybe I'm more informed well I was a member of the pathology museums group at the time so some were relocated um, the problem also was that at about that time there was less interest from the universities in maintaining pathology museums. It's quite difficult for pathologists to maintain a museum themselves and it's quite clear from the Human Tissue Act that specimens can't be held by private individuals so a a number of specimens that were used for teaching in that way um, were incinerated, I'm afraid and some museums did disappear like the one at the London Hospital Medical College which was a a very nice museum. Some of the demonstrably historical material was moved to Bath, but as Dr. Alberti said, it's very hard sometimes to know its provenance, and if it was dubious, it had to be incinerated with other resection specimens, so it, it went along with, with organs that were being removed from patients in modern surgical procedures, and it was incinerated in, in just that way only 100 years later. Thank you very much. There's a question over here. Um, I think the Human Tissue Act was an appalling act, um, particularly by the fact that it introduced this public uh, display license, which means that basically all the pathology museums um, around London and elsewhere, uh, you can't actually bring the public in to, to see them anymore unless you've got a license. I mean, the only places that have a public license are, are here. Uh, the Welcome Museum, the O2, um, and even the Gordon Museum, that, uh, I'm sure somebody's here from the Gordon Museum, has a public display licence, but they don't use it. Uh, but in the wider historical perspective, um, medical museums, professional medical museums, have been closing their doors to a wider public ever since the 1857 Act. I mean, I think that's, that's simply put into regulation of practice anyway. I... You know, there are ups and downs to the Human Tissue Act, and, um, and we work very closely with the Human Tissue Authority. I think it right and good and proper that uh, access to human remains should be very carefully considered and very carefully done. I do think it's a little expensive, um, but uh, I, I, I am in favour of regulating carefully access to human remains because of the status of the body, because of its capacity for uh, abuse. Um, I don't know what you think from a professional perspective. I would like to see medical museums open to the public. I think it's probably an unrealistic objective now. For various reasons, we cannot charge admission. I don't think that would be acceptable for material that's been donated for medical education. 
I don't see an objection with public education. You could certainly open the museum in the manner of the 19th century ones and give a public lecture. I'm not suggesting you could just leave the door open and let anyone come in from the street, but you could present the collection to the public in some ways, and certainly before the act at the London Hospital. I've shown a lot of people around the museum. It's it's gone now, but... I think the response I had was very positive from people who saw it. And I've, I've never, it's obviously a selective group, but I've never shown anyone round who was in, in any way shocked or disgusted by it. People were, were interested. And I think it helped people to understand. One of the problems with the Human Tissue Act, as you say, was that it was drawn up by people who had no conception of why anyone would want to look at a piece of body in a pot. And communicating this information to the civil servants involved was very difficult because it it was something they couldn't possibly understand. So Dr. Larson talked a bit about Welcome's collecting policy, but Dr. Alberti and Dr. Bates, is there any indication of what kind of specimens either a prestigious anatomical museum or an anatomical collect, or show, what they were looking for, what would make a good specimen for these kind of places? Well, they wanted... Um, they never commissioned specimens. They bought commercially available material that was produced mostly on the continent for medical education. What was popular, whole-body figures were popular. The the so-called anatomical venuses, including the male ones, and the ones that have survived are still popular exhibits at museums today. Uh, The reproductive system, because this this was an area of concern to people, diseases that people might themselves get, like syphilis, or any kind of model of disease that was topical. So in the 19th century they had the pathological effects of tight lacing to try and dissuade ladies from wearing too tight a corset. Those those are the ones that were popular. Unpopular were single organs out of context. People like to see something in its context. And the other thing, of course, is various kinds of birth defects that are a category all of their own, but they, they always draw a crowd. And if, I mean, if one's thinking about the um, purportedly orthodox museums, they had very um, considered and very expansive collecting policy, you would call it now, in that they were seeking to complete an encyclopedia of disease. So, you know, the, the classification, the pathological classification um, of the uh, 19th century was built with these museum catalogues, more or less, and so you'd have, the catalogue would sketch out, you know, the complete uh, uh, diagnostic knowledge at the time. And, you know, in order to fill these in, you watch the wards and you see where they come in. Or if you get a better example of a particular condition, you use that one instead of the other one. And, you know, they had explicit desiderata um, for the, from the wards and the cutting rooms and so on of, of when the, the interesting stuff comes in you slot it in, you know, and actually the classifications and the layouts for the hospital and medical school museums, um, there were different emphases, but there's a lot of similarities between 
kind of Khan's series is in the museum and say some of the hospital museums? That's a good question. I think there was a question here first, and then go there, and then to the middle. Um, I have a question for Alan Bates. Um, I was struck by your comparison of the first anatomical Venus that you show to the Titian Venus, and, and your point that um, there is a there is a sort of a, a, a convention or a tradition whereby you can look at naked people, but under the heading of art, and they become nudes. But it struck me that the first the, the first anatomical Venus you showed um, violated that convention in, in quite an important way with with the necklace, uh, and it's, it's, it strikes me that any kind of item of clothing or jewellery does tend to take um, a nude out of the category of art and into something closer to the voyeuristic or the, or the pornographic. So my question really is, were these um, models designed to titillate? Was there an attempt, in, in a sense, to cover several bases, the, the medical function, some other sort of exhibitionary or exhibitionist function? So I just wonder if you could say a bit more about that. Well, that's a very good point. And, and another difference, of course, was that the wax models had body hair, which the, the artistic needs didn't. So were they in any way trying to suggest prostitution? It's certainly a consideration. I, I think it was certainly true of some of the exhibits of venereal disease, the, the old joke of a, a night with Venus and a lifetime with Mercury. I, I think they might, they might have been trying to lead people on, this is, this is the tempting form of this life, and then here you have these sexually transmitted diseases. They, they were scaring the worried well, so watch out. And in that respect, it was almost akin to a chamber of horrors. But on the other hand, in terms of titillation, I think that in mid-19th century London, around Piccadilly, there were, were endless sources of real titillation without anybody having to go and look at a case full of waxworks. Thank you. Actually, I could just add a comment to that as well. That I thought it was interesting what you were saying about the National Gallery when you were saying they smashed up the models and then that they didn't smash up the paintings or slash the paintings in the National Gallery, which has happened, but not that the authorities have done that. But um, I think it's, it's interesting that they did tamper and alter the paintings though so um, you know the, the, not necessarily what you're seeing in, in, well, hopefully what you're seeing now is what the artist intended they, they've gone back and taken off those restorations but they would go in and they would raise cleavages, they would paint out nipples they would put in myrtle leaves to cover things um, which they felt were inappropriate to make it more decorous maybe for the, the public who, who were going in there which I thought was it's interesting but I think there's, um, there's a question here, I think it's first, and then there's a question, and then there's a question behind. So somebody down here on, on the right. Hi, I've got a question for Francis, and um, it's to do with the image that you have up behind you. At the very far end of the uh, Medicine Man ga Gallery, there are two serial displays, um, an excruciating display of amputation source, and arguably an even more excruciating display of delivery forceps. Um, my question is, uh, because you mentioned this, um, it seemed that Wellcome's uh, collecting practices were endless, didn't have a point of closure. How much, to what extent was that to do with, his, was he influenced by the Pitt Rivers mm. concept of... Uh, the evolution of objects. Yeah, he really, he was, and that, in fact, the Pitt Rivers Museum is the one museum he 
talked about as inspiration for him. So he almost kind of had this, the anthropological um, idea of the time, which was, or one of them, which was Pitt Rivers' idea of the evolution of design technology and um, um, in mind as he was collecting and he kind of saw himself um, doing the same thing for the history of human health and the history of medicine and science. Um, and those um, typologic, I mean, those displays you're talking about are typologies um, um, of the, the, the uh, development through time um, of particular um, uh, technology, like you say, amputation saws, um, the forceps. Um, and so that is very much uh, hearkening back to a kind of an echo of, of what Welcome was hoping to do with his own collection. Um, although there are only about, I don't know how many are there, about 20 or something. He had 25,000 surgical instruments were given to the Science Museum, so goodness knows what his typological <laughs> sequence would have been like. But um, that, that is... Um, that definitely was in his mind. And I think there is a link in that, and this is something that we've talked a lot about at the Pitt Rivers Museum as well, of, of this kind of... that You can always slot another one in. You know, once you've got this series from, say, the beginning of the 19th century to the end, and you're collecting amputation sores, and you're interested in the way the form has changed and the design has changed, you, there's there's always going to be another one you can slot into your sequence and the sequence kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So there is a kind of um, a theme there as well, yeah. And there's a lady here, I think, in the... Have you got the, the mic? Sorry, the lady here in the middle there, I think. Oh, okay. um, nice. yeah. Thank you. i got two questions. Now, one is for Alan Bates... It struck me after you talked that the Gunther von Hagen thing seems to be a continuation of the 19th century anatomical um, museums. And the discussion, if I remember correctly, was about moral things very closely related to what happened in the 19th century. So I would like to know what is the difference or is there a difference between 19th century attitudes and 20th century attitudes. And my other question is to you about Welcome the Collection. I would like to know what is left in what the Welcome people in the Welcome Trust did with the collection. Um, well, from what you said, I get that it's only a part, but is it a specific part? And I would like to say that I'm very impressed by the way they made sense of what was left, apparently. It, it's a very, very good, um, how can I say, a, a very good way of making sense of what was left. I suppose it's not um, in any way methodological what was left, but they made, they made sense, of, sense of it and... To me, it seems it's becoming that this medicine man gallery is kind of museum of mankind in a way. It's a small British museum, I think. I would like to know what you think about it. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go first? Or? Okay, I'll, um, yes, yes, I'll go please. on. Um, <laughs> um, 
The Medicine Man Gallery started off as a temporary exhibition at the British Museum, which was um, in 2003, which celebrated 150 years since Wellcome's birth. And it was... Um, it brought together from lots of different collections um, Wellcome's objects. Were, some of them were brought back together again. Only a tiny, tiny fraction. I think there are about um, 600 objects in that temporary exhibition at the British Museum um, from all different uh, museums around the UK. Um, and then um, at the Wellcome Trust, they began to think about... Um, presenting to the public more of um, being truer, really, to Wellcome's own interests and having these gallery spaces at the Wellcome Trust. Um, they, they put on permanent display this gallery, which is a version, a smaller version, I think there's about 300 objects, um, of that temporary um, exhibition. Um, and they, when they were planning it... Um, they did obviously a lot of thinking about should they try and recreate what Wellcome himself was trying to do or should they use the collection as a launching point to think about things in their own way. Um, and they chose the latter. And so they chose to have um, some themed cases which look at um, different life stages, life cycle stages, beginning of life, the end of life, um, how people deal with ill health and some typological um, displays which were kind of um, harking back to <coughs> Wellcome's own ideas but in a more um, aesthetic way really that rather than a kind of prescriptive way. Um, so the objects on display um, today are um, on loan from the Science Museum. So that's where the, the um, core of Wellcome's collection ended up. And um, I, th I think there may be, actually, it's, I'm not sure I can fully answer because there may be objects on loan from other places. Um, but uh, it's, it was a conscious decision to, to go in, in a new direction with, um, with the, the very small number of objects they could deal with in that space um, compared to what Welcome himself had. So... I don't know if that answers your question, but I, wh what I think about it is it's actually completely different to what Wellcome himself would have done because it's very much, to me, it seems like a kind of cabinet of curiosities kind of display. There's not much, uh, the, there's, the things are kind of picked out from different places and different times and as little kind of gems of interest, little curiosities that, um, and it's actually um, almost completely the opposite of what Welcome, him, and, uh, Welcome himself would have wanted, which was a much more kind of educational, prescriptive um, display of everything um, laid out very um, carefully. And, well, not, you know, I, I just think it's a, quite a different um, aesthetic idea from what Welcome himself would have done. And what's the difference between 19th and 20th century attitudes to museums? Well, I think one obvious difference is, of course, that the von Hagen's collection was a display of plastinated bodies. So there is a, a question of consent, and you are looking at, at a real human form, not at a, a waxwork, although you're, you're looking at something that doesn't look like a preserved body. But in terms of similarities, 
more than you might think. The source of the opposition was the same, the medical profession, the arguments were more or less the same, that seeing anatomy in itself is somehow corrupting for the public. One medical organisation described it as grotesque, I'm sorry to say, but I thought they were rather beautiful. There's a lady up there and there's a gentleman in the middle. He has got a question, so go first. Thank you. My question is for Dr. Larson. Um, you were speaking before about Henry Welcome as being, quote, a very democratic collector, which is very, a very nice way to put it. Um, but you were saying especially as he got up in age towards the end of his life, he was just collecting massively. Do you think there was any um, tendency towards kind of a salvage mindset? Did he, have you ever found evidence of him getting kind of swept up in the idea that he needed to save um, all of these cultures. Yeah, and he was very competitive. I mean, he was very. The market kind of became his his playground, really, and he was very competitive. And he kind of started in the in the nineteen um, twenties um, to see himself as saving this this heritage for Europe because there were all these which is ironic because he was American but the, there are all these big American collectors and this great fear of everything going to the states and these um, you know hugely wealthy Americans who were buying up um, Europe's heritage and this was the perception at the time and he he um, saw himself as kind of Keep retaining all that stuff for for Europe, um, which was really, I think, just a way of of expressing his um, his own obsessive um, purchasing power and and his own um, inability to um, hold back from from competing with all the other collectors he knew. I mean, it was really kind of a um, you know. Uh, almost like a, a gentleman's sport, you know, that you, that you just wanted to see who you could outbid at auction and who you could beat to that tiny little junk shop in the, you know, on the French Riviera that had an amazing unknown collection of manuscripts that you just had to get your hands on. You know, it was it was a way of kind of um, justifying his his um, avarice really and his greed. But um, but yes, he did definitely see himself as saving things. Um, salvaging things for future generations. Okay, I perhaps we have a, a final question from. Uh, I think it was a gentleman actually in, in the red shirt actually up there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, given the rise and the fall of museums, obviously we're all interested here in uh, seeing the rise again. Considering this is a fairly small uh, auditorium and it's not full, um, how do you propose to uh, encourage and generate this enthusiasm that we've seen today uh, amongst a wider audience, given that the profession, particularly obviously developed and uh, depended enormously initially on uh, the anatomical museums, uh, and then the development of books and subsequently the development of e-learning to the extent that uh, the professor of e-learning at uh, St. George's has just been given a grant of 3 million euros. So there's a lot of money around for, for um, learning and development. Um, but do you see that as a threat or do you see that as uh, something that runs along uh, parallel to the uh, 
um, the direction of, of museums. I'll give the um, professional answer, but I would have given this answer in, you know, in my previous capacity as, a, as an observer, as an academic observer. Um, I don't see it as a threat at all. I think, and I've taken these ideas from, from Liz Hallam, that specimens and uh, gross anatomy and pathology only works in an educational capacity and even in a um, sort of more culturally engaging capacity if it's juxtaposed with other media. So the, the, the pot on its own with the organ in it means nothing if you don't have it alongside text, if you don't have it alongside images, if you don't have it alongside wax models and um, things to um, uh, explicate it. And so there's nothing to say that e-learning, that the visible human, that uh, 3D techniques and the development of um, um, information technology should not go alongside the museum specimen as new technologies have always gone alongside museum specimens. You know, the rise of cheap printing and so on could have been considered a threat to, to, to the museums. You know, um, there are many new technological advances that one might interpret as a threat to, you know, what one might think of an old-fashioned material culture. In fact, they've always been used when done well. They've been used alongside um, anatomical intermediality, as, um, as Liz has called it. Um, if I could have got a grant for three million, then yes, of course, I would have pushed him down the stairs to get it, uh, him or, or her, I don't know the <laughs> professor. Him. Um, uh, but I don't see that as, uh, as a threat. I think museums work best when they work hand-in-hand hand with other areas, with other professions, and with other media. <laughs> 